appears to be standing down, which is a good thing for all parties concerned and a very good thing for the world. No American or Iraqi lives were lost. Welcome to Weekend Warriors, the foreign policy podcast that asks what else is happening in the world. I'm Essie Cup. So it's all about Iran this week. That's what the whole world is watching and, and understandably so. For the moment, it seems cooler heads have prevailed in the face-off. In fact, the U.S. and Iran recently exchanged messages through a Swiss diplomatic channel, and Iran shared multiple messages alerting the U.S. that the missile strikes were the extent of their retaliation for the killing of their top general. Now, whether we believe that assertion is another issue, but this moment presents a chance for both sides to de-escalate. We still have to remember, though, there is a theater wherein both sides have forces fighting in an ongoing hot war. That's Iraq. Iraq is where much of this U.S.-Iran flare-up has played out. That's where the, the drone strike that killed Qasem Soleimani last week happened um, at the Baghdad International Airport. And that's where Iran's retaliatory missiles hit landing on al-Assad Air Base in Iraq's Anbar province, which, as you know, I'm sure, houses U.S. troops. So there's no separating the Iran tensions from the decade-and-a-half conflict in Iraq, not just on, you know, a micro, moment-to-moment level, but also broadly. Without the Iraq war, there's no power vacuum for Iran-backed Shia militias and Sunni groups like ISIS to battle over. That battle then spills over, stokes the flames of a Syrian civil war. It bolsters Iran's relationship with Russia. It makes Iran a heavyweight player in a very volatile region. Now, following the Soleimani strike, the Iraqi parliament voted to end the presence of U.S. troops in the country. This tracks with Trump's past campaign promise to remove our troops from Iraq And it's the desire of many Americans as well to end that war. But an open conflict with Iran, well, that could make our presence in Iraq even more entrenched. So joining me now to make some sense of this fraught foreign policy moment through an Iraq lens is CNN military and diplomatic analyst, retired Rear Admiral John Kirby. Thanks for joining me. Yes, ma'am. Happy to be with you. So the immediate trigger for Iraq wanting us out of there, I think it's safe to say, was the killing of Soleimani. One of one of the conditions for our troop presence in Iraq was that we wouldn't do just that sort of thing. But before that, was our relationship with Iraq fraying? I think it was already tense. Yeah, I don't know if I'd go so far as to say it was fraying, but it was mm-hmm. certainly tense because of the influence of Iran in Iraqi politics. I mean, is this Shia uh, government-led government in, in Iraq. They have ties to uh, Iran. There's a long border there. Uh, so Iran has a lot of political influence. And, oh, by the way, the Shia militias, we've been focusing on their military activities, and rightfully so, SE, but they also have been gaining in the last few months in a political way. They are arranging political protests. They are involved in regional and local politics in Iraq. So uh, they are not just... Uh, a, a military or you know violent group of people. Uh, they also have political interests as well. So the 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 relationship between the United States and Iraq was 
was certainly more tense even before uh, the Soleimani killing. But that, of course, brought it up, you know, obviously into the forefront, as did, quite frankly, the strikes of a few days prior Mm -hmm. uh, on three sites in Iraq that that we claimed were responsible for the rocket attacks on uh, that killed a, a U.S. contractor. So things were already tense. I find it very interesting when you listen to Secretary of Defense Esper just a few days ago when he talked about our goals in Iraq very expansive. And I was surprised that he didn't get any pushback from the White House. He said that our national security interest, our presence in Iraq, was about securing a stable, secure, and prosperous Iraq. When, in fact, in the Obama administration, when we put troops into Iraq, it was very specifically and narrowly defined as a fight against ISIS. And the only reason we were able to get those troops into Iraq was was by promising the Iraqi government that once ISIS was firmly defeated and the Iraqi security forces were capable of sustaining that defeat, we would remove all U.S. forces from Iraq. So it's, it's interesting that uh, that it, on one hand, the Secretary of Defense uh, sort of drew a more expansive view and, and was very adamant about how we weren't going to remove our troops from Iraq because we have a, a larger strategic goal there, uh, and yet the Iraqi government is going through all these twists and turns about the U.S. presence on Iraqi soil. So do, do the Iraqis need us there at all? Yes, they do, Essie. I mean, while it is true, uh, Trump's claims that the ISIS caliphate, geographic caliphate, has been defeated, the ISIS ideology certainly has not, nor has the ISIS presence in Iraq uh, nor has the ISIS ability to recruit, retrain, uh, retain and train forces. Uh, in fact, one could argue that uh, with all this tension between the, uh, the United States and Iran, we might actually be ceding more territory to ISIS, more, more ideological territory mm-hmm. to ISIS than before. And the Iraqi security forces, while more capable than they were, certainly before the advise and assist training uh, mission was put into Iraq, they are not fully capable yet. And uh, ISIS is not fully defeated. So, Uh, The Iraqi government is in a very difficult position. They certainly want to maintain a healthy uh, relationship with Iran. They don't want to be owned by Iran, but they want to maintain a healthy relationship because of the long border and the the long history there. Uh, But on the other hand, they very much still need U.S. troops on the ground. Uh, And so there's a lot of internal pressure inside the Iraqi political structure about how to deal with this going forward. Well, and to that end, you know, Trump has met with Taliban officials in Afghanistan. He still hasn't been able to reach an agreement on pulling our troops out of there. That was likewise a prime a promise he made when when campaigning because of the political landscape that you just laid out in Iraq. Will he face similar challenges? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I mean, this is, you know, it's the classic it's the classic uh, example of it's easier to get into a war than it is yeah. to get out of one. Uh, and politics, war is an extension of politics and this and this exactly both in Iraq and Afghanistan today really demonstrate that that it is uh, once you've once you have established yourself in a foreign country and in in the in the course of establishing that your your presence you have defined it as a mission to improve indigenous forces uh, and the infrastructure the security infrastructure in a country like Iraq and Afghanistan um, you know it's harder to define that red line mm. of where, where, when are we done? You know, when have the local indigenous forces achieved a level of competence and capability on the battlefield uh, that it is safe for us to leave? And I don't think anybody would argue that in either case, Iraq or Afghanistan, that we have achieved that, that we have 
that we have gotten the indigenous local forces to a to a level of competence on the battlefield where they don't they don't need us in Afghanistan. They very much still rely on American air power, mm-hmm. intelligence, and surveillance capabilities for the Afghan the Afghan national security forces to do their job against the Taliban and against terrorist elements. And the, as as we just talked about, the same is true in, in Iraq. So it's much harder to extricate yourself from an advise and assist mission than it is to extricate yourself from a purely combat or counterterrorism mission. Well, so at least for now, Iraq seems to be the territory in which our our hostilities with Iran are playing out. Is that, in fact, a, another reason to stay? I think for the meat, for the time being, y- yes, it is. Although I I would caution that we we shouldn't look at it as our presence should, shouldn't be looked at uh, um, as a, a means of countering Iran. Uh, uh, solely in the region. The, the, the reason our troops are there and the types of troops we put there and the capabilities that we have there, remember, are, are all designed to go after ISIS. They're not designed to go after Iran. And I know this may sound sort of counterintuitive, but it's important to remember that while the fight against ISIS was really aflame in 2014, 15, and 16, the the Iranian-backed Shia militia, the PMF as we call it, the, the, the mobilization forces inside Iraq uh, that were tied to Iran, were actually partners in that effort. They actually helped us in our effort to go after ISIS. Um, so it's, I, I think it would be dangerous to look at our presence in Iraq simply as a hedge against Iran. All that does is make it harder for the Iraqi government to keep us there. And, and make no mistake, S.E., one of the messages that the Iranians were sending when they struck al-Assad the other night, I mean, was the, a message to the Iraqi government that, see, it's dangerous to have Americans on your soil, right. dangerous to have Americans on your bases. You need to get them out. So I think we need to be careful before we couch it like that. Mm-hmm. But I also think we need to remember that the fight against ISIS isn't over. And that's the reason that our troops are there. And we want to be able to get back to that mission at some point. Now, I asked a defense official the other night. Uh, about the al-Assad strikes, because we, we still don't have full clarity on what they hit and how much damage they caused. We know they didn't kill any Americans. Uh, and I asked specifically, you know, have they hampered our ability to go after ISIS should the suspension of those uh, of those missions resume? And I was assured that they that they hadn't. Hmm. Well, I, I'm a, an atoning supporter of the Iraq war. Um, <laughs> do you think decisions we made back then helped get us to where we are now? Boy, that's a great question. Uh, I, I, you know, you can't escape history. Um, and I, I think it's, um, it would be imprudent and ignorant for us not to consider the, the fact that the, the, the strategic decisions we made, the mistakes we made, as well as some of the good decisions we made, mm-hmm. have certainly led us to where we are now. I mean, I, you've heard the refrain from the right that, you know, because Obama pulled out of Iraq, you know, that, that, that grew to... I, ISIS's development. Um, I, I think that is a that is a not a full contextual argument mm-hmm. here. You could you you seen the argument from the left that because of President Bush's blunder and moving us into a, a war in Iraq, you know that 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 caused greater instability in the region. I mean, clearly, look, you you could. Uh, I'm not a historian, but you could argue this for days and days. Right. I think we have to look at where we are now, mm-hmm. and where we are now is in a, an incre- a very dangerous. Uh, relationship with Iran that that has its roots in Trump's decision to pull out of the Iran deal. Now, again, we could argue that one way or the other, but mm-hmm. but but 
what we need to find now, and, and hopefully the attack on al-Assad has given us now a chance to take a step back and find out if there's a way to diplomatically move forward with Iran so that the tensions don't get escalated. Uh, and and a, that's A. B, to find a way to try to make it easier for Iraq not to have the Iraqi government not to have to choose between the United States and Iran. Um, right, right, they have been walking a knife edge between two adversarial powers uh, that they both need. They need Iran and, and they need Iran, Iran's influence in the region. They also need American boots on the ground. We shouldn't put them in a position where they have to choose one or the other, uh, because I, I worry, quite frankly, that we won't be that choice under this particular right. unpredictable administration. We wouldn't be that choice. And that's not good for the American people uh, yeah. when it comes to the ISIS threat. Well, well let's let's um, end this on Iran. And I'm going to talk about this more on my on my show. But I'm always interested in expert opinions on whether Iran is a rational or irrational actor. It's, you know, a decades-long debate, and there are competing views. Yeah. It's hard to argue a regime that wishes Israel wiped off the map is a rational one. Um, as, as Middle East scholar Bernard Lewis once said, mutually assured destruction for the Iranian regime is not a deterrent. It's an inducement. But look, others think, yes, Iran is rational, and I think we saw some of that rationality this week in, in evidence. What's your thoughts? Yeah, I, this is a great question to talk about. Um, I think it's important for the American people to understand that Iraq, I'm sorry, Iran, is not a monolithic uh, government. Um, we, yes, there, there's a democratically elected Rouhani government, but there's also the supreme leader. Right. And, and so there's almost parallel interests. Mm. parallel structures and parallel policy decision-making processes that's hard for us to understand in the United States. Whether you like Trump or not, he's the commander-in-chief. He's the top of the chain of command. When he makes a decision, you know, things happen. It's not quite the same in Iran. They're not monolithic in their outlook. They're not monolithic in their in their in decision-making processes. The Revolutionary Guard, the Quds Force, of which Soleimani was in command, report to the Supreme Leader, who is a religiously motivated, not elected, revolutionary leader inside Iran. Uh, and and there's, there's very few connecting muscle and sinew attachment points between the Supreme Leader and the Revolutionary Guards and the, and the elected government in Iran, the Rouhani government, which is fairly moderate, yeah. certainly in comparison to the Supreme Leader. So there's a lot of tension inside Iran, and that's why we have seen a lot of these protest activities inside Iran about the government itself. And when we, we just need to be cognizant of that, we also need to be cognizant of the fact that when we, when we take certain actions in Iran, that we are empowering one side or the other. And, and we need to think about whether we're empowering the right side or the other. You can argue whether Rouhani's a good guy or not. And, and clearly, you know, he's a moderate by Iranian standards, not, not by necessarily regional standards. Right. But we don't want to do the, the job of the hardliners for them. Mm. The only people that hate the Iran deal more than Donald Trump and Mike Pompeo are the mullahs. Right. And so we need to be considered about whether or not we're doing the mullahs work for them. And, and look, I mean, I see just what, three months ago or four months ago, an Iranian Revolutionary Guard commander on the record, but, you know, on, actually told an, an Iranian uh, state 
news outlet that he was in favor of regime change. He wanted to kick the Rouhani government out. Mm-hmm. So when we when we talk about Iran, we need to consider the internal fractures and the effects of our decisions and our comments on whether or not we're making it easier or harder for a young population of, of a, a demographic in Iran that really does want a better relationship with America and with the West, whether we're making it easier or harder for them uh, to make the kinds of necessary political changes over the long term in Iran that could suit the regional interests in our own as well. Admiral Kirby, thanks so much for joining me on Weekend Warriors. Always such a pleasure to have you and your insight. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for listening. I'm Essie Cup. Tune in to Weekend Warriors next time. 